Hey y'all, this is Gary Meese with the case against. I've got a little problem with my uh, recording devices today, so I don't really know how this is going to sound. Uh, not that I think I sound that great most of the time anyway, and I'm certainly technically challenged. But uh, let's just see how this goes. Hopefully, it'll go fairly well. If not, <laughs> I guess I'll have to try again. wonder if my volume's up enough. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I think I'm going to stop and play this back and just see what happens. Okay, well, huh. I think I'm going to be okay with this. Not really happy with the volume controls it's showing, but uh, it sounds it sounds doesn't sound that bad on playback. So maybe maybe it'll be better than usual. I don't know. Um, this is Sunday, April fifth. There's a ID. Uh, Investigation Discovery Special this evening on the West Memphis Three. I, I have very, very low expectations of this special. I don't think it's going to do anything to advance any knowledge of the case. In fact, I suspect it'll do what these things usually do, which is advance uh, ignorance and misinformation and disinformation. Um, I kind of get the feeling it's just a, a retread of Paradise Lost, which is is something that I it's understandable and that you know that is a a, a film that not only set up uh, certainly set up a paradigm for uh, true crime documentaries, but certainly set up the paradigm for this particular case, and it's kind of hard not to play off of it. Which is something I'm trying, you know, I mean, I'm influenced by it, and I, I try to go back and look at the court records and use that as the real basis of my understanding rather than some misleading documentary. But it still does, it still has its effect even on me. Um, and it certainly has an effect on dealing with the average supporter since that is often the only real information they have is what they saw on a documentary. Uh, they often don't even know which documentary it was. They just know they saw it somewhere at some time, and it looked to them like somebody did it besides those poor teenagers, though they're often not really sure who that somebody else would be. Uh, as I mentioned briefly with uh, the last episode I had about Bob Ruff, I'm going to say a little bit more about that and that uh, Ruff is basically leading everybody on. I think I called the last the last episode the Ruff deception. Well, it is a deception. He's not going to get, he's almost certainly not going to get any DNA testing approved by the state of Arkansas. He has, he has no standing. Uh, he could get Jesse Miskelly, Damien Eccles, and uh, Jason Baldwin to at least petition the state. They may have they may be considered to have some sort of standing uh, uh, with the state on on that on the case. Even though they pled, the problem is is they pled guilty. They have DNA evidence that they're still hanging on to. They haven't released that from 2011. And, uh, you know, they could go out, they could go to, up to the court and, uh, as Ruff pointed out in his episode today, go to court and, and file it, which raises the question, well, if it's that simple and easy, why haven't they done it? They're supposed to, they said they were going to go out looking for the real killers and not, none of them has done one blessed thing 
uh, at least for public consumption. Damien Eccles acts as if he couldn't be bothered. He wants to talk a lot about all his mental anguish and suffering, but and time in prison. But when you get to the nitty gritty details on the case, he he can't be bothered for very good reasons. Uh, Jason Baldwin. Uh, Miss Skelly's simply out of it completely, and he wants to be that way. And at least, if the other two would take his strategy, uh, we would have much less to talk about in terms of the case, for good or bad. The they continually dig themselves new holes. Jason Baldwin, uh, the more he talks, the more deception is is evident. And it should be, this deception's been there all along, but it becomes more evident the more interviews he gives. He does tell the same stories over and over again, but he, invariably he's going to throw in some new detail that's going to make him sound even more like a liar than he already is. And he is already a liar. He has no alibi. He has no basis for an alibi. Damien Eccles has no basis for an alibi. Jesse Miskelly has no basis for an alibi. The whole premise of Ruff taking his investigation into new territory is because of the, uh, the, the alibis of the suspects. Because they've got alibis, he doesn't even feel particularly, com supposedly, that he doesn't feel particularly compelled to actually look at the facts of the case. So he can blow off Damien's mental history. He can blow off statements from Ken Watkins and William Jones that indicate that uh, uh, Eccles confessed to them. He can dismiss the softball girls. He could dismiss uh, the Hollingsworth family siding. He can dismiss the polygraph. He can dismiss, dismiss the special knowledge. He tries to explain away Jesse Miskelly's many confessions. You can count up to 10, depending on how you really want to look at it, but there's, I think, five that are really sort of official, on-the-record confessions. Uh, June 3rd, the one to the state troopers, the one to his attorney, and there were two, one to the prosecutors, oh, the objections of the attorneys, and then there was another one to the prosecutors, which there's not a transcript available, but he confessed again to the, to the uh prosecutors and let's assume that they've got all that information somewhere presumably even taped one would hope but the point being is uh, he does, he really just writes off all the later confessions of Miskelly as just being well you know he was misled to begin with but he wasn't misled he got a few things wrong and the original confession, there's nothing original about the finding these few things wrong in the original confession. Uh, it was obvious to the police, uh, obvious to William, William Powell Rainey, <laughs> who has a most, had a most enjoyable tenure as a municipal judge. I was privileged to go see him in action for about a year every Monday. It was quite entertaining and sometimes enlightening. Um, just routine cases, small town. It's kind of hard to explain what that was all about, but it was it was a regular feature we had in the newspaper. Uh, but uh, we had that. Uh, we anyway. William Powell Rainey, who's an was an was is an astute uh, jurist, uh, automatically recognized there were some problems with the confession in terms of times. Uh, Gitchell and Ridge and so forth. They they knew that as soon as Jesse opened his mouth, uh, and they went back and they got a corrected time on that. Now Jesse threw in stuff about the choking, which is problematic. Uh, Miskelly, I mean uh, Eccles, almost certainly had a stick he was using. Did he use a stick to help uh, immobilize? Uh, Stevie Branch, it doesn't seem unlikely, but he didn't choke him to death, which is what the which is the impression you would get from the at least some of the confession. And then uh, you get uh, 
the the business with the the, the the time of days which changed, and then the business with the rope, which you know, Miss Kelly later explained, and you can say it's a weak explanation, and I don't even disagree with that. It sounds it was weak to start with, and it's weak in its resolution. But he he does say later that he was just trying to fool the investigators. It seems like a foolish and stupid way to to try to fool them instead of coming up with something a little smarter. But guess what? Jesse Miskelly's not that smart. He's also not smart enough to take in all the details that he was spouting out to the to the uh, police after a relatively brief interrogation off, that wasn't taped after he failed to polygraph. Uh, it wasn't very long. It was... Uh, 12.30 to a little bit after 2, so it wasn't that long that they were talking to him before they put it all on tape. And uh, you kind of get the feeling that he threw them a curveball when he started changing the times during the interview. They're thrown off by that. Like, where does he coming up with this? Gitchell comes back to him later and says, you know, when we were talking, you said evening and he said oh yeah yeah and then he goes five or six or six or seven jesse miskelly's not that bright that, that he wasn't checking his watch i don't think if, if he did have a watch that day on which is kind of beside the point but if he did he wasn't checking his time closely to see what time it was whenever this was going on so uh the point being is miskelly gave this confession, and he gave it freely. He was not coerced. He talked to his attorney at least twice in the summer that or we have uh, transcripts on where he's talking as if he's guilty. He's not saying, oh, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. He's talking as if, yeah, I was there and I did this. What, how are we going to get out? Of, what is our strategy? How are we going to get out of this? He doesn't articulate that so much, but that is the general tone of those two interviews those aren't I don't quite consider those confessions but they're very close to confessions he confessed to the state troopers the day he was sentenced and was on his way to prison he confessed to his attorney uh, with his hand on a bible described the location of the Evan Williams bottle a very damning piece of evidence that I, I you know I'm there's a there's how many hours of Bob Ruff are there? Maybe Bob Ruff has mentioned Evan Williams bottle. I don't recall it. I'm not going to say he's never talked about it because, you know, I just don't remember. But it's certainly not something that's received a lot of emphasis. And, you know, if I'm wrong about that, please correct me. But I think I'm correct in saying that, you know, if, if he's mentioned it, it's basically in a dismissive sort of way. Oh, he did mention. Oh, yeah. I think he did mention it and say, oh, yeah, there were thousands of shards of glass there. There weren't thousands of shards of glass there. How would they pick the Evans, Evan Williams shard out of thousands of shards of glass and take it to the liquor store and match it up? If you have thousands of shards of glass, you have thousands of shards of glass. How would they ever pick out a, a bottle shard, that particular bottle shard out of all that, particularly considering these are not bottle experts? And I think they were actually searching at night, too, which makes it even a little more problematic. Uh, yeah, I'm 90% sure it was at night, and in February, it's dark. It's kind of cold, probably. I, don't, I haven't checked the, the weather on that particular day, but it was probably pretty cold. And they're out there looking for a shard of glass. And they found, what they, they found the shard of glass. That matched an Evan Williams bottle, exactly where Jesse Miskelly said he left it. The same brand of alcohol, whiskey, that when they called Vicki Hutchison and said, did you buy Jesse Miskelly some whiskey on that day? Oh, yeah, I bought two bottles for him, one for, one for him and one for Dennis Carter. Yeah, what, what brand was that? Oh, let me think about it a minute. Oh, yeah, it was, it was Evan Williams. Okay. Vicki Miskelly, Evan Williams, Evan Williams bottle shard found underneath this overpass. Jesse Miskelly describes drinking this bottle of Evan Williams and then smashing the bottle 
in his fear, reaction, disgust, all the stuff that was going through him after witnessing this killing. That is very incriminating evidence in and of itself, though it's not something you can really go to court and say, hey, well, they didn't even have that information then, but you can't go to court and say, oh, well, you know, we found this bottle of, the shard of Evan Williams bottle down underneath the overpass, and therefore we know he did it. Well, you wouldn't do that anyway, but it is one of those things, it is one of those circumstances that lead one to believe that Jesse Miskelly Jr. was involved in the killing, and there are many such little pieces and parcels to this. Uh, his, his next confession was over the objection of his attorneys. They were in the room begging him not to not to confess, and he went and did it anyway to the prosecutors. There was another confession to the prosecutors. It's again not recorded, but it's there. There's other conf you know there's other confessions. There's the confession to Buddy Lucas, which is very believable and compelling if you listen to it. Buddy Lucas he failed a polygraph when he started lying about about the uh, the confession. So you know it's it's called a what a false negative makes a positive. In other words, if if I tell you something and then you ask, if I tell you this story and then you put me on a polygraph and I start denying this, the uh, the story, which is what Lucas did, and the polygraph shows I'm lying, it indicates that yeah, you heard this story and you heard it, the story in the way you described it. It was the truth to you. I submit that th that was the truth to Buddy Lucas. Very similar, very, very similar sort of dynamic was going on with Ken Watkins and his story of Damien Eccles on Friday, March 7th, uh, walking to, I think they were going to, I think they were going to Walmart, but they, they were going to, they were walking together over an overpass or something and, and they were together, just the two of them and uh, Eccles starts talking about his involvement somehow in a peripheral sort of way, but his that he was at this scene of this killing. And it was what amounts to an incomplete confession, but certainly a sort of confession. And Ken Watkins tells the story to police, then he denies it when he's under the polygraph. The polygraph shows he's lying, which indicates that ergo, in fact, he was telling the truth when he was making these statements about what um, Eccles told him. There, uh, certainly wouldn't call it a confession, but when L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., the late L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., was talk, uh, talking to police and he described Eccles talking about how he wondered what it would like to be to kill someone, and you know, I'll I submit that that's not the kind of idle conversation between teens. It's probably not that unusual, but um, that alone, I wouldn't say is that uh, strange to just idly wonder. I wonder what it feels like to actually kill somebody. Most kids probably don't do that, but it's probably not that unusual. But when Hollingsworth later ask Eccles about this conversation. Uh, according to uh, Hollingsworth, it was taken care of. Taken. <laughs> taken care of. So, Eccles had had his experience. Hopefully it's his only experience with killing somebody. Hopefully it's been his only experience with killing somebody. I don't know what he's up to. I'm not accusing him of anything. But I wouldn't put anything past him either. And I wouldn't put anything past him in the future. Uh, so we had that. Any, the point being is that these alibis just don't fly. And then you contrast their alternative suspects. Bob Ruff writes off uh, Mr. Bojangles, and I think rightly is just simply being kind of like a ridiculous sort of scenario that this guy, this guy in this kind of condition would somehow be involved in this crime. Again, it's possible. 
lots of things are possible, but it just it's beggars the imagination that that he would have been uh, this guy with this a deranged, deluded guy who seems to be you know can't seem to get himself together in the women's bathroom, leaves feces and blood smeared around, but would pull up, would do that within an hour or two of this meticulously cleaned up crime site. It just doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't have any way of controlling those children uh, in his kind of condition then, you know, unless he'd loaded himself up with PCP or something in the meantime. And, you know, that's possible. Who knows? Maybe it's not even unlikely that that, that part of the scenario might make sense, but uh, nobody else puts Mr. Bojangles at that side, and I will say, I've said it before, and I will say it again, that part of West Memphis, West Memphis is a very transient sort of place, up, up and down Missouri, close out to the interstate. There are lots of people who are in, they're just sort of dropping in, they go to the casino, drop in the gas stations, they're driving through town, uh, there's a large uh, class of urban poor, and uh, it's not really an urban place, but it's got an, it, it's got, it, it's got its urban, it's got its urban problem, so to speak, in, in West Memphis. And there are, so there are lots of people who are wandering around who really may not really have that closely tied to any home base. And uh, that, that sort of scenario would not be uncommon at all over in uh, that part of Missouri Street. I used to see homeless people over there all the time. Uh, and... You know, speaking of Judge Powerani in Municipal Court, it was very, very common to have every week there would be multiple people in there who violated various laws, done various weird, strange sorts of things, who were in their uh, Municipal Court after being picked up, um, you know, for wandering around parking lots and just, you know, in a deranged or drunken condition or drugged out condition uh, go on down the list lots and lots of that sort of thing really minor offenders but people for the most part but people who are chronic uh, offenders on, on like minor violations like loitering littering public drunkenness etc etc and that's all this guy was he was a very generic sort of public nuisance call that police and a lot of towns get all the time. Not every town would be have this. Where I live now probably doesn't happen that much. sort of thing probably doesn't happen that much. Though it probably happens more than I'm aware of because I haven't been to municipal court here. But uh, in terms of Memphis and West Memphis yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, so there's that. The, I'm probably just going to talk about the rough stuff today, and I may just be repeating myself. I wasn't going to get into the book, but I, you know, I'm just off track here with this, or on track here with this. Uh, much ado is made of the animal predation theory uh, that the wounds to the boys were created by animals, and I think Warner Spitz was actually even talking about coyotes at one point which is really ridiculous. The big problem, the big, big problem for me, and something that Warner Spitz just simply says they have boys all drowned, but he doesn't address the fact that uh, Christopher Byers had essentially bled out before he was placed in the water. He didn't drown. He was essentially dead when he was placed in the water. And it was because of the wounds administered to him by some sort of sharp instrument welded by Jason Baldwin. It was not done by killer snapping turtles. Um, the 
idea that you can run an experiment. You're going to run an experiment and the original setting for this, this was a relatively shallow ditch, about maybe two feet deep, somewhat seasonal, was busier than usual because there had been quite a bit of rain. I mean, it was more of a ditch than usual because it had been quite a bit of rain. It was still draining off. Uh, it's el somewhat elevated, closed down into this larger bayou. Uh, when they did, it was nighttime, relatively cool. It was some warm day, but still relatively cool in the evening. Um, and with a lot of human activity around. That you compare that, and you have two, three relatively large bodies, two of whom have mutilation and one doesn't. Those that those instances of mutilation exactly correspond to Jesse Miskelly's stories, in his story that Michael Moore, he essentially protected Michael Moore from being cut up. Uh, that Jason wanted to mutilate him as well, but but uh, Jesse stopped him from doing that. Uh, it, they, it corresponds to the condition of the bodies. The placement of the bodies, with Michael being further away, also speaks to you know several things, including that Michael ran away. He was pulled back by uh, Jesse Miskelly, and that. Uh, Miss Kelly, who was very drunk at the time and in a very high-stress situation, was involved in his own attack on this small child. This hideous, brutal, sickening attack on this little boy. Uh, and he said he was getting tired. Tired. He got tired of beating. Here's a here's a young man. He's almost 18 years old. Uh, works as construction type work, roofing, and then he's you know, he's getting tired from the from the beating he's administering this little eight year old boy, but he draws the line at a knife being used on him. Well, you know, fifteen twenty feet away, there's other things going on with the other two boys. Miss Kelly saw some of it. Was he actively witnessing all this? No, he was involved in his own shenanigans at the time, his own uh, evil deeds at the time. And uh, what he did see, he's been very consistent about. He saw Stevie cut in the face, and he saw Christopher cut on the bottom, as he put it. Uh, basically, he caught him, saw him cut on the crotch. So there were many little stab wounds all around uh, Christopher's bottom. They can't be explained by turtles. So here's the deal on animal predation and Bob Ruff's test. Bob Ruff takes some chicken carcasses, drops them down in a rope in Ten Mile Bayou. Now these boys weren't chickens. They weren't the same size as chickens and they weren't prepared to be eaten. He drops them in Three Mile Bayou, warm weather, in the full bayou in the daytime. We're talking about two very different environments. They may be in proximity to each other, but they're two totally different circumstances in terms of what's going to happen with turtle feeding. Now, my I'm not an expert on turtles, and Bob had an expert on turtles there, and he could have asked about that, but he didn't. But my understanding is that turtles essentially feed during the day. My perception of them is that they do, that is exactly what they do because I I mean I've seen the tur I've seen turtles at Ten Mile Bayou. I've been out there and guess what? As soon as I show up they scatter. But they were everywhere. Not big turtles, not snapping turtles. <coughs> but little turtles. And they scatter. Well, what would have happened with uh, with the searchers? For one thing, turtles wouldn't search at nighttime. They're not going to be feeding for the most part. 
during the day, there were searchers everywhere out there. Maybe not continuously, but often enough that turtles would be out of sight most of the time, and certainly any feeding they were going to be doing was going to be interrupted. So, um, what you have is you have two totally different circumstances. Now, is it possible or even likely there might have been some minor predation? Maybe that some of these smaller predators were attracted to the blood from the wounds that Jason Baldwin administered uh, uh, to these boys. I don't think it's unlikely. And uh, perhaps it explains some of the more raggedy aspects of, of the wounds. But, you know, but without being too gross about it, it's more like, you know, the, the question about animal predation. Number one, did it occur at all? It's not really clear that it did. Number two, there weren't any turtles found in the creek. Yeah, there are t turtles are known to be in that area, uh, but there weren't any turtles found in the creek. There weren't no turtles were observed by the searchers in the, in the water, uh, and they did drain the little little ditch. Uh, So there certainly weren't any big snapping turtles just hanging around in there waiting for something to eat. For one thing, there wouldn't be that much to, for them to eat in a small, seasonally, seasonally active drainage ditch. While Ten Mile Bayou is a relatively active, fairly large creek, if you will. It's a drainage ditch, but it drains a lot, and there's a lot of stuff in there. There would be a lot of things in there. Not so much this little ditch. Two totally different environments. But was there some minor predation that went on? Perhaps. You know, the idea that the uh, predation and uh, knife wounds are mutually exclusive is just simply a fallacy, and it's, it's the sort of fallacy that's being perpetuated by maybe both sides to an extent, but you know, I don't find it particularly compelling that there was a lot of that there was a lot or even maybe any animal predation going on, just simply because you know the boys were smashed down into the mud. How's a turtle going to get down there and uh, attack? A, a, you know, just a pristine uh, uh, Stevie Branch's pristine face until a, a, a turtle decides to take a chunk out of it if his face is smashed down into the mud. How's that going to happen? How's a turtle going to do that with the body parts of Christopher Byers? It's, it didn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense that they, that would be what would happen. And I don't take the animal predation theory too seriously, but maybe, okay, if you want to we can posit that perhaps there was some minor animal predation going on. I, again, I don't think it's that unlikely. But to, to use that, the whole premise of this is, oh, well, because animals did this, then we have to throw out Jesse Miskelly's confession because Jesse Miskelly's confession described Jason Baldwin wielding this knife. And he does this very consistently. He's very consistent in many of his descriptive details in confession after confession after confession. He doesn't change it around and suddenly has uh, Damien Eccles. The thing that gets changed around is the sexual assaults. And I, whatever reason, maybe he just simply had trouble dealing with that, prosecute, uh, processing that. Maybe he wasn't really clear about what was going on. Uh, it seems like maybe uh, there was a what seems to be most likely is that there was maybe a, an abortive attempt to do some sort of anal assault on one of the boys. It didn't work out too well, and Miss Kelly masturbated over the boy's body and ejaculated onto his pants, which is what the evidence would show, since there seemed to have been a semen stain on the pants, which, you know, speaking of, let's get those pants out. Let's see who's left uh, squirted out their uh, 
manly juice is onto uh, Stevie Branch's pants. Let's do that. That's a, that's a great plan. And while we're at it, let's pull out the blood pendant. And I realize they used up a lot of the blood and this other testing, but maybe there's just enough residue there in this magical, wonderful, super duper DNA test that Bob Ruff's touting. Then maybe we can pull up Stevie Branch's blood from the blood pendant. Let's go for it. We're not gonna, they're not going to be doing that. Uh, Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles are not going to be petitioning. Jesse Miskelly's not going to do it. Damien Eccles is not going to do it. The only one who could potentially even think, do it in terms of his present posturing would be Jason Baldwin. Jason Baldwin, all he's got to do is make some phone calls. He could, he could get uh, everybody online to, he could get somebody to go to court for him and uh, seek to have that blood that uh, those that evidence retested for DNA. And let me go go further with that. And that, echo, I mean, a rough acts like this is going to would be the answer to the problem. Now it might be because there's a good chance we're going to show up with DNA from Eccles, Miskelly, or Baldwin. Seems like it. I don't know that much about this. I'm just going by what he says, but it sounds like, you know, there's a real strong possibility that might happen. But if they don't come up with that, what are they going to have? They're going to have DNA from family members, from schoolmates, maybe from a neighbor. <coughs> maybe a teacher who helped uh, Stevie tie his shoes the week before. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. Uh, police officers. They can run uh, all sorts of DNA. Part of what I'm saying is, you know, if they don't come up with any DNA from any of the three suspects, what does that prove? It still doesn't prove they didn't do it. It just shows, oh, we didn't get any DNA. We didn't recover any. It seems like we should have, but we didn't recover any DNA from any of these items. It's still not sufficient to go back to court. It's the same argument they had earlier, which is, oh, well, no DNA equals a lack of DNA. It doesn't. It's it's a lack that doesn't prove anything. It's not exonerating. They were very selective about what they tested before. This would not be so selective. So who knows what they would come up with? And I would suggest they probably are going to come up with DNA from. Uh, if it's as good as they say, they will come up with DNA from th these three these three killers. But if it, they come up with DNA from John Mark Byers, they come up with DNA from Terry Hobbs, it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to mean a thing. They are family members. They were around them. Transference is not only possible, but it's even likely. Uh, in fact, I probably should say that, you know, if if this test is that great, then there's a really good chance that the DNA is, you know, uh, you know, you should find Terry Hobbs' DNA on, on, on the clothes if it's that sensitive and it picks up that much stuff. Uh, I don't know where the the boys' clothes were all laundered, but if they were laundered, they weren't laundered at home. If they were laundered at home with other family members, they might have DNA from that. If you t if you if they were laundered in a public uh, public laundry, uh, who knows where what DNA might show up on there? There's all sorts of possibilities there. So. You know, and to take it even, to 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 give uh, supporters some hope. Well, you know what? If if it turns out the Hobbs family used a public laundry, and it turns out the Eccles Hutchison family used the same laundry, and Eccles DNA shows up on uh, Stevie's shirt, well, well, maybe it was from the laundry. I mean, that that's the problem with the DNA. It it sh it may show too much. Maybe too broad, and I'm not saying. You know, frankly, if if they're 
DNA shows up on the clothes or the other items, they did it, which I, they did it anyway. They did it. But even going back to court, her, the attorneys could make that sort of argument, and they might prevail. The fact is they're not going to be recharged. Uh, lack of DNA would not, prove, would not be a sufficient proof to prove that they didn't do it. And the presence of other DNA isn't going to be sufficient proof that, that somebody else did it. The only thing that is likely to happen, if it's as good as it say, is you get DNA from the three killers on there. So, great, let's, let's go test the DNA. But I guarantee you won't see the actual killers. They may make a show of it, but you know, when it comes right down to it, it's on them to be making the, the case for the retesting of the evidence, which isn't going to happen anyway. But they're not going to be doing it. And that's the bottom line on, on the, the rough thing. Um, you know, he brings in a lot of silly stuff about all the... It's not silly, but it's kind of pointless with what happens with the, the three boys prior to... And he's, he's doing the tail wagging the dog thing. His, his, his theory drives his actions, and his theory is that is that uh, if we use victimology and we see what the boys were doing, then therefore we'll find out who killed the boys. Well, there's a the whole false premise there is that the action is that the actions of the boys prior to say 6:30 that evening, other than whatever got them into the woods to begin with, is somehow related to their killing, and it's not. There's no evidence that it is. Uh, you know, the idea that Terry Hobbs is going to be just absolutely furious about Stevie Branch coming home late. Well, you know, he seemed, if you listen to J David Jacoby's, one of Jaco David Jacoby's statements about Terry playing guitar for a while, he talks about it being a long time at one time and not so long another. And then, they, you know, it's there's a lot of inconsistencies there, but you know they didn't talk to these two men until de almost two decades later, it's 17 years later. So, or 14 years later, when was it they talked? Anyway, they uh, it was it was a long time. It was a long time. It's 14 years later. The, uh, you know, you they don't. You go all those years and you're not going to remember details exactly. You're going to have general impressions of what was a stressful time anyway. Uh, the idea that Terry Hobbs uh, was up to some sort of criminal mastermind, making some criminal mastermind moves by having the police come to Catfish Island to give a report rather than going to his house. Uh, that's one theory, a theory that makes more sense is, you know, Terry Hobbs was so hoping that Stevie would show up. Boys have been known to stay out late, play late, sometimes even till dark, and then show up and everything's fine. That's what happens almost all the time. Then occasionally, you know, very, very, very occasionally it doesn't. And up until, you know, 8, 30 at night or so, they probably figured, oh, well, these boys are... They're really going to be in trouble when they get home, but, you know, they went off running around doing something, and maybe they got themselves in some sort of jam, but they'll be home sooner or later. And they were getting worried about them, but they, and they were concerned. They thought they might have drowned in the, the uh, bayou, which was busier than usual at that time. But uh, they didn't, uh, you know, they Part of what I'm saying is that the, the sense of urgency, the sense of, oh, this is really, really, really bad. It's dark. It's after 9 o'clock, and he's not home. I don't think it really hit Hobbs until he had to go tell it. He didn't want to tell Pam about it because what's she going to do? Exactly what she did. Freak out. Oh, he's dead. You know, before any of that, anything else happened. Oh, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. I know it. Well, he was hoping that none of that was going to happen, but it did. He goes in, and as soon as, as soon as he gets to Catfish Island, he calls the police. 
preface this by saying that when he was with uh, Dana Moore and John Mark Byers, somewhere around eight, eight, just after the after uh, Regina Meek had arrived, so it was after eight ten or so. So maybe it could be anywhere from eight ten till eight 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 eleven, I think, to eight thirty or even later. He was over at the uh, the uh, house with. Uh, he was at the buyer's home uh, with Dana Moore, and the police were there. He was under the impression that the police had been informed of this disappearance, and in fact, the police had been informed of the disappearance. They knew all three boys were missing. That was when everybody put it together that, oh, there were three, there were actually three boys missing. It's not just Chris by himself. They finally put it together. Oh, yeah, Dana Moore had seen those three boys together around 6 or 6.30, off in the distance, tried to call them back, but they were gone. Well, Terry Hobbs was on the scene. He knew, knew the police had been talked to. He knew that uh, Dan, Dana had talked to the police, so forth. The thing was, was the official report of the, miss, of the missing boy what that, that came in initially was for Chris Byers from John Mark Byers and his Melissa and John Mark. Uh, the official report for Michael. Now, mind you, the police knew that they were missing, but the official report taken for Michael, according to Regina Meek, uh, was uh, after nine o'clock. She came back and talked to him after nine. I uh, talked to Dana after nine and, and got that report. And then the John Moore took the official report at Catfish Island. Now John Moore also, according to Regina Meek, in a 2009 hearing, John Moore also dropped by Terry Hobbs' house around. You know, none of this is. You know, the time frame is problematic, but. It was after she talked to uh, uh, Byers, the Byers couple, and and uh, Dana Moore. Uh, she dropped. They dropped by. Uh, John Moore dropped by Terry Hobbs' house and saw him at home. The the boy wasn't there. John Moore did not make an official report because it there wasn't an official report status at this point, but. My point being is that the police were out looking for these three boys. Terry Hobbs was well aware of that. <coughs> and he may have had the impression that the police were doing, I'm sure he had the impression that the police were doing more than they were doing. In fact, he and really all the parents were very upset that they didn't do, the police didn't do more earlier than, earlier than what they did. It was a full-fledged effort the next morning, but overnight, there was some effort, but there wasn't very much going on looking for the boys, comparatively speaking. And um, so he was under the anyway he was under the impression he shows up at Catfish Island. Oh yeah, the police are out looking for the boys, but I guess I need to make that special report. I mean, or maybe he was just calling again to see what was going on, and then he gets oh well he hasn't been reported yet. Oh well okay here's the report don't know that that's what went on in that conversation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. And without more specific questioning of Terry Hobbs, which I don't know why he would ever talk to anybody in the media again. If he doesn't talk to the people in the media, he's damned. If he does talk to people in the media, he's damned. So save yourself some trouble, Mr. Hobbs, Terry, and just, uh, don't talk to people in the media. It, it's not going to do you any good. And he didn't this last time. Except he did talk to Ruff. He had a private conversation with Ruff off the record. And, of course, what Ruff does is he violates that by, uh, doesn't quote him by name, but he talks about this person at this table that had this reaction to the prospect of DNA testing. Well, we know who you're talking about, you big, fat bloated idiot. We know who you're talking about. We know you're talking about Terry Hobbs. 
but you don't have the guts to say it, but you still violated his confidentiality anyway. Oh, man. I'm trying to roll back my language so I don't say something that's really inappropriate. But you're pretty darn stupid and pretty darn devious and pretty darn dishonest and really just a despicable character. Um, if I say much more, I'm just going to get more angry about how badly Ruff has treated all these families. He brought up the Don Moore thing again uh, today's episode, reminding everybody that Don Moore got on there and didn't really contribute much to the case knowledge, but he allowed her to trash her parents during a time where they were having some, some family difficulties. And maybe she just felt the need to vent. I didn't even say too much now, except it's all out there. But, you know, the problem, the problem is, is, you know, he has no sense of perspective. He has no sense of being uh, being discreet, being principled. All that's out the window. He's just a big old boob. And this is enough from Gary Meese. I didn't get into my book at all, but the book is Where the Monsters Go. I also have another book, two, the two-volume set, called Blood on Black. And I have a combined, condensed, revised version called uh, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Hopefully the sound on this isn't too bad. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to get the, the problem with the sound fixed can't really it's a technical thing it's really a mechanical technical thing with like a bent pen or something and I've just got to figure out how to fix so I'm having to use a uh, I've got a fairly decent microphone but I can't quite figure out how to use it right at this minute so I'm using an internal microphone from the, an iMac so if you don't like the quality of the sound guess what I don't either anyway I'm signing off Stay safe, stay well, stay at home.